future generations will benefit from a new way of relating to each other, to people who are different from them, and relating to their own physical built spaces around them, the, the earth. We owe it to them to build this now where we can and how we can. Welcome to today's episode of a new sub-series of the podcast, Who Belongs? The Othering and Belonging Institute, with financial support from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, is developing a series of podcasts to capture examples of bridging to belonging. We want a world where everyone belongs, so how do we get there? The answer, bridging. Throughout the series, we will talk to leaders implementing bridging work and individuals who have experienced their bridging transformation. My name is Miriam Magaña Lopez, and I will be hosting today's episode. Today, we will be speaking with Debbie Lacey. Debbie is the founder of Eastside for All, which serves Eastern King County. Eastern King County encompasses a few cities outside of Seattle, Washington. Eastside for All has a mission to transform East King County into a place where racial, economic, and social justice are realized, and belonging is made possible for communities of color. Today, Debbie will talk to us about her Build for Belonging initiative and specifically her use of the co-creation framework as she advocates to build a cross-cultural center with belonging in mind. To begin, can you give us a brief background of East King County and the communities that live there? Yes, uh, what we currently know of as East King County in the eastern suburbs of Seattle is on the unceded and ancestral land of the Coast Salish, the Duwamish, Snoqualmie, Stillaguamish, and the Suquamish people. And then uh, settler colonialism by European Americans began in Bellevue and um, in our region um, in the late 1800s. And um, Aaron Mercer and William Maidenbauer are kind of known to be the, the ones who settled the land there. Um, and the largest convention center in East King County is actually named the Maidenbauer Center. So um, just a little bit more of the history here, because I think it's important for the conversation today is within about 10 or 15 years of them um, arriving here in this area, a significant logging community was established. And it was mostly Japanese immigrants who cleared the land. Um, and to attract tourism, one of our cities, Bellevue, um, initiated a strawberry festival created in the 1920s. It was very successful. However, in 1942, the festival was canceled because of the forced imprisonment of Japanese Americans during World War II. And at that time, 90% of the agricultural workforce in our area was of Japanese ancestry. So the festival couldn't go on without them. And it took 45 years to bring that festival back. So um, at the time, there was a very um, powerful businessman and politician named Miller Freeman, who um, actually founded the Anti-Japanese League of Washington in the early 1900s. And he was a lead advocate for anti-Japanese laws in our state. So after the forced removal of the Japanese Americans, many in the farming community lost the land that they owned or leased which led to the development of the Bellevue downtown area, including Bellevue Square, which was built by Miller Freeman's family. So built on stolen land. And then of course, um, the multitude of anti-Black policies and practices, there were racially restrictive covenants, um, Black and Brown people weren't afforded even a place of rest because of area cemeteries that also enforced white only policies. So, um, I talk about all of this because when we talk about belonging and placemaking 
and equity in our built environments, we have to start with the history, even the painful parts, especially the painful parts. Right now, East King County is an incredibly diverse area. We have, um, in many parts of our county, one out of three people are immigrants. Um, some of our cities are considered majority minority cities, although I don't like that term anymore. Um, but we have a lot of people of color that live here um, in the suburbs of Seattle. And um, we're actually more diverse racially and culturally than the city of Seattle is just because of the movement of many of our immigrant um, folks to the suburban communities. Can you tell us about Eastside for All and your Build for Belong initiative? What are some of the projects that you're working on? Eastside for All's Build for Belonging initiative is about um, creating um, or expanding our third places, meaning um, places that aren't home or work or school, where people can gather um, with no agenda um, informally, but where a lot of um, bridge building can be, can be made um, informally. So we do, um, some of the work that we do, for example, um, is right now involving um, the East Rail Corridor. So that's a really interesting project. So um, the East Rail is a 42 mile um, uh, path essentially from south of us um, up through East King County up to the Snohomish Line and involves our, um, it's built on a historic railroad line actually. So um, it'll be biking and pedestrian trails, um, sections of light rail, and um, it's going to be connecting employment centers, residential neighborhoods, and regional transit hubs and green space. So our Build for Belonging initiative um, at the beginning was about bringing the frameworks to King County and the partners, the city partners that are all leading that effort and helping them um, understand models of inclusion and equity when it comes to placemaking and the ways in which we are advocating to work um, in communities with communities, um, really um, taking and borrowing from some places and people that I'm inspired by, like um, there was a uh, MIT publication called Places in the Making, and they talk about this virtuous cycle where it's a mutual relationship, um, communities transforming places, which in turn transform communities. And I really brought that and some other models forward and they were very excited, very interested in this co-creation model as opposed to more traditional forms of community engagement, which tend to be very you know, top down, very limited. In the end, you still get kind of the same demographic of people participating in those conversations um, as are the ones that are the power, um, hold the power in decision-making. So anyway, they um, are very open, um, have been really interested in our ways of working with our community partners. So we bring in um, community-based organizations and grassroots groups and have really um, pointed um, the leaders of this initiative to our local community leaders and said, hey, here are the people who have the connections, the trusted relationships with the very communities that you say you want to be involved in this project. Let's bring you all together. Let's make sure that those community groups are compensated for their expertise 
expertise, the social capital that they're bringing, all of that wisdom and work that goes into this kind of an initiative. And let's make sure that we're co-creating this together side by side. So it's, real, it's really exciting. And we're going to be um, working together on a lot of things over the next couple of years and hopefully beyond, um, because once the trail is fully built, um, there'll be lots of opportunities for community gathering spaces and programming events. Um, but right now we're excited about um, the annual welcoming week, um, which takes place in September. And we're gonna be able to all get out there on, on the trail together in person, uh, hopefully, and uh, have a great event together. Yeah, it's really great to hear that you're doing this work because location and spaces do create opportunities for people to come together. Can you tell me more about who is leading the East Whale Corridor project and the co-creation frame that is being used? So the, the East Rail Corridor Project brings together um, key leadership from King County government itself. So staff, um, King County council members, along with council members and mayors from, our, from the cities that are involved. Um, and that includes Renton, Bellevue, Kirkland, Redmond, and Woodenville. And so um, in addition, nonprofits and businesses, um, because it really is a cross-sector um, effort that requires uh, connections with all these different groups and including our environmental advocates too. So it's a, it's a really great cross-section of many different sectors in our community that um, not only have a stake, um, but really are um, live, you know, and work along this corridor. And so it's about bringing them all together. So when I say they, I'm talking about the initial leadership that kind of brought everyone together. And, uh, you know, they don't necessarily, it wasn't an extremely um, diverse group racially or culturally. So they were lacking some of those perspectives, um, we think, and really um, looking to partner with um, organizations like myself and other community-based groups to bring in that expertise and that lens of um, really connecting with our immigrant communities and our, and our people of color. Yeah, it's great that you're leading this work to bring the voices of people who would benefit from this into the conversation, because you're right, oftentimes these leaders just do the work in the way that they envision it, not taking into account really what the community needs. I'm curious to learn a little bit more about why you started Eastside for All. It's a relatively new organization. Can you tell me what you were seeing in East King County that prompted you to create this group and why one of the main areas of focus is on belonging? This work evolved out of about two decades of, of work um, that I co-founded the Eastside Refugee and Immigrant Coalition in early 2002. And as you know, that was post 9-11. And it was um, a really volatile time, um, a very difficult time for immigrants, particularly our Muslim neighbors. And so um, we saw a real need to bring, at that time it was nonprofit providers into conversations and actions that would really be much more um, aligned with our growing diverse community. And so out of many um, 
sessions meant many efforts and initiatives and lots of partnerships. And I really have to emphasize that nothing I do or my organization does, you know, happens in a vacuum. We are very much connected and reliant upon um, some of our key um, community leaders here. So we all um, were continuing to come together, address gaps, address needs, but really what we saw in East King County, and I'm aware that this is very um, a familiar story across the country in suburban areas and smaller, um, especially rural communities too, is that we're lacking the infrastructure, right? There's not an immigrant refugee affairs office based in any of our cities. That's only in Seattle. Um, that's the nearest one, um, which isn't that far, but it can be very far for people who are trying to navigate a new area and um, really want to be closer to home, right? To, to find the resources and communities that they need to, to survive and thrive. So we didn't have that. Um, none of our cities were leading um, racial equity initiatives. That was all happening with King County government and again, the city of Seattle. So lacking that infrastructure, we were constantly spinning our wheels. It's just, we would get one step ahead and two steps back and really um, not feeling that we were advancing equity at a systemic level. And so um, around 2018, I just really was feeling that weight and the frustration and really asking myself big questions about what was the point of my work anyway, if it just felt like band-aids and drops in the bucket. So uh, it was a moment of personal and professional crisis for me, honestly. And it was through that dark period where um, Eastside for All was born. Um, again, out of these relationships, out of listening to community members, um, my friends and colleagues of color um, and all their experiences. And so it was created to help form the partnerships, public and private, um, and really work closely with our institutions, namely our city governments and our school districts, um, particularly those who had already set out to make a commitment for equity and inclusion. Um, we wanted to be able to give them the tools and resources to do that and the community connections as well. And so we see ourselves as an advocate first and foremost, but also a convener. Um, and sometimes an educator and a trainer, right? Um, but, but really a place um, of working in the in-between spaces, you know, between institutions and community members, between different communities, um, and really trying to build those connections so that together we can do more than just Band-Aid solutions, that we can really through policy change and investment changes and ways of being, um, changing the way that we interact with one another, we can hopefully um, make systemic enduring changes that really can benefit the entire community. It sounds like the points of tension that you were seeing that prompted you to um, create this organization and do the work has to do more between people and places, organization or lack of infrastructures rather than between communities. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I would say it's actually all of that, really. Um, there, there is tension between communities, between Black and Brown and immigrant communities. Um, we've had some really unfortunate things happen in our local cities where there was a lot of anti-equity rhetoric and actions that were actually led by a small but powerful group of new immigrants. Mm -hmm. And it was pitting some Asian Americans against our Black and Latino communities here. Um, we have a large Muslim community and they face a great deal of Islamophobia. 
Um, our black population is relatively small between like one and 3% in our east side cities. Um, but they're ex experiencing great disparities and discrimination and persistent racism. Um, and some of that comes from other people of color and other immigrants. So we know that it's a reality. It's a reality in our community. And um, again, I think Eastside for All, without trying to be Pollyanna about it, we are really wanting to create the spaces physically um, and through programming where people can come together honestly face these realities with one another and the painful um, experiences of that and ask the now what question, how do we move past? How do we heal? How do we appropriately acknowledge first so that we can heal? And then what's before us? Um, where are the places of mutual interest, mutual benefit, um, shared vision that truly can unite us? Um, if not, across all you know, topics and in all ways, but in certain specific ways that could make really positive lasting changes. I do think that um, a lot of the fear and a lot of um, the negative perceptions that people have of different communities have to do with the fact that there are little opportunities for people to interact with one another. And there, um, you know, we get all this information from political leaders who sort of pin us up against each other and, um, you know, starts to brew these tensions. And I like the way that you're approaching um, this by creating opportunities for people to come together, for people to come in intentional spaces um, that were physically and have also program created for people to come together and interact and get to know each other and, and hopefully um, begin to dispel those stereotypes that we have of one another. You showed me a survey report for the city of Kirkland, which um, is located in East King County. Even though the majority of community members felt safe, a lot of Latinos felt forgotten. Some identify gaps in bilingual services and express the need to travel to other, city, uh, other cities to get services in Spanish. Others felt like there were no Latino community in Kirkland, or maybe there weren't enough public spaces where people were able to form this community. Is this a pattern in other areas of East King County? Absolutely, and and I think we're not alone in that. Uh, again, you know, I think a lot of suburban cities, especially smaller ones and rural areas, can certainly um, have this same thing happening where you know, predominantly white community members um, have built the cities that now exist, the buildings around us. And, um, and then as we diversify, there hasn't been that intentional um, plan to say, um, hey, let's, let's look around and take, and take an assessment of, of the physical spaces that we have, the, the community gathering spaces, and what we're doing as a community to intentionally build community, mm -hmm. um, not just within individual communities, because I think that's necessary. That was part of, um, you know, that project was launched by the city of Kirkland in partnership with the Promotoris um, network, which was really about listening to Latino community members in that particular city of Kirkland. And that's what they said over and over. Um, they would say, we didn't even know that there were other Latino families here. They would say, uh, if they were asked a question about the Latino community in Kirkland, they would say, what Latino community in Kirkland? Um, and, and that's not just because we don't have a Latino community center, but it's partly that, you know? So I think that there's, both are lacking. When I say both, I mean um, individual cultures and um, communities 
spaces, you know, Latino, Muslim, Black, Indigenous, Asian, like people need their, their places. People need to find their people. <laughs> and that's super important. Um, and the places and spaces where people can come together with that intentional spirit of let's build community across our, um, with other people from other backgrounds. So I, I do think it is something that is a challenge, a gap, uh, no matter what city we're talking about in our area. And it's something that I'm deeply committed to um, making a dent in. You've mentioned a few times this idea of creating cross-cultural facilities and gathering spaces for people to come together with communities that are similar to them or you know, also to bridge across communities. Uh, you said that there's one being explored in the city of Bellevue. I'd like to talk a little bit more about this project. I know that this is still in the early stages, but can you describe how this idea was developed? Yes, uh, Bellevue is the largest city in our East King County area, and it's one of the largest cities in the state of Washington, in fact, um, and it's extremely diverse. It was uh, the first in our area to become one of those quote unquote um, majority minority cities um, a few years back. And so um, this initiative for a cultural center, a cross-cultural center, goes way back nearly 30 years now. It was in a cultural diversity community action plan, and then it was in several other policy documents, but it was never really um, fully actualized or even getting, it didn't even really get launched um, past the idea stage. Uh, but then in 2014, Bellevue created its diversity advantage plan, and that outlined a number of recommended actions for the city to pursue its um, equity and inclusion um, initiatives. And one of them was to convene a community advisory group to explore um, the establishment of what was called there a Bellevue Diversity Institute. So it was intended to be an experiential learning center that would serve as a citywide cultural center, a resource for businesses, schools, community groups, etc. And its mission would be to educate, celebrate, challenge, and inspire Bellevue to be a welcoming and inclusive community that embraces diversity. So while the Diversity Institute terminology has been dropped as a, as a name, the concept remains. And Bellevue invested in a multi-phase study and community outreach process. And from that study's key findings, in addition to more programming and more art venues, um, there was expressed strong interest and enthusiasm for a branded and identified cross-cultural center in Bellevue, separate from existing community centers. So Bellevue as a city has the opportunity to, to physically build something that honors community input and truly advances its commitments, right, to equity and inclusion in ways that current community centers and programming alone can't fulfill. So the idea is um, more about intercultural or cross-cultural as opposed to multicultural. And I think it's just an exciting place that we're in to be having this conversation, to having had the, the investments made in this process. And we truly hope um, with the support of a great multicultural, multiracial group that's come together called the Friends of Bellevue Cross Cultural Center, we really hope that um, the city will continue partnering with this group and really listening and being responsive to this vision that is new and unique. It is very rare to find in the United States an actual intercultural space like this, what we are imagining. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. And I wish I had something like that growing up. 
I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the co-creation process that you mentioned that you're bringing to people who are leading these projects to ensure that everyone's voices are created or are heard rather. Um, and also this idea that through the process of co-creating something, it also supports belonging. So it's not just the endpoint once this place is physically done that's going to create belonging, but the idea that if you're bringing community members into this process, being involved in the process itself has great opportunities to create belonging within the community. Can you talk about how you'd like to see this take place and what will it require of the city and broader community? The request is not easy. Uh, the, you know, what we're asking, um, because it's new, is uh, challenging sometimes to even communicate or articulate this way of doing things when our institutions, our leaders are really so used to doing it a totally different way. Um, and it is a way that unfortunately has perpetuated um, you know, the status quo, i.e. Um, practices and um, actual physical spaces that really um, not only don't take advantage of an opportunity to um, invite broadly and welcome broadly, et cetera, but in some cases are um, not unwelcoming, you know, um, not safe for people. And of course, that's an, a negative unintentional outcome. But, but I just think um, the first step is really about an openness to new ways of doing things. So we're, we're asking, we're inviting um, the city and the leadership um, and community to um, be in the, in the chaotic space for a bit, you know, to uh, be patient with um, when you extend an invitation that's truly meant to be inclusive and people actually show up uh, because they care and they're excited about something, uh, it, can be, um, it can be difficult. You've got lots of voices or lots of cooks in the kitchen, so to speak, right? What I want people to remember or know is that that's not, that's not the end result. That's just part of the process. It's a natural part of the process. That doesn't mean that the whole thing is a, is a huge amount of chaos from beginning to end. It's just a natural phase that any diverse group of people have to go through in order to get to the clarity, in order to get to something that that everybody can really feel good about. And the process of doing that is so important that we can be in a space together and we can say, oh, wow, look at all the different opinions about how this building should look or what should happen in this building. This is really hard. And we can say, and now what? You know, what is it that we want to offer back to ourselves, our community, our youth, future generations? Um, what can we make together? And what are the compromises, but also what are the, what are the innovations that can come out that um, really honor our individual histories, our collective history, and the way forward? So I think what we're asking for is in some ways um, a, a um, suspension of, um, of what we have known and certainly a risk, but one that's meant to truly inspire and just like you were saying, it really isn't just about any one project. The process itself of doing it this way, of deeply listening to communities who have historically been marginalized, disenfranchised, 
opening the doors where instead of just inviting them to the table, you're asking them to help build the table alongside so many others. This is about claiming our power as community. This is about saying we matter. We do have a voice. We may not have the millions and billions of dollars required to build all the things that we would like, but we have voice and power in community, and we have lots of resources and riches that we can bring to bear in the conversation and that should be honored and respected because we're here too. We're contributing to this community and making it great. So there's so much that can come out of that that is not just about in the end having a great space where people do great things, but think about the civic leadership. Think about, you know, diverse representation. Think about all the ways that um, new projects will, will kind of be um, born from, from that experience of coming together in that way. You're inviting community members to come in and voice their opinions and make an impact on the way that, um, you know, this cross-cultural center would be invited or rather would be designed. <laughs> I think that there might be some listeners who are interested in, you know, applying this framework and work that they're doing, because you are right. In many places, oftentimes city officials have limited time, limited budget, to do a project and it's often easier to just get it done internally without bringing community members in because it does add more time it adds more messiness and like you mentioned it's not just because it's bringing community members in but because it's bringing more people to the table and with any project that you do if there's more people on the table there's more ideas and more perspectives that need to be taken into account how are city officials taking this feedback i would say that we are being heard uh, really, we are being heard. Um, no final decisions have been made where there's um, some tentative aspects of this that we hope get resolved soon so that we can just continue moving forward. Um, but the main thing is that, that the conversation is happening and um, city leadership are, they're listening, they're asking us really good questions. Some, some are tough questions, right? Things that we don't have answers for yet or, or may never know for sure, um, you know, that we can't anticipate, obviously. But there's a lot of conversations happening that are key. And I think what's been helpful is to bring in a wide range of people, constituents, stakeholders, um, that matters to our leaders. They truly want to be responsive to the community. So it wouldn't be nearly as successful if it were just me having a conversation or one of my other colleagues. It's the, it's not just the powers and numbers, it's the, um, it's the diversity of stakeholders. And so we really, um, did a good thing by starting our Build for Belonging initiative with a series of events and conversations where we're bringing models forward from other parts of the country, other parts of the world to say, here's what's possible. Why can't we do this? Why can't Bellevue do this? Kirkland, Redmond, um, you know, what's holding us back? What is the way forward together in our communities? And so asking those kind of questions, presenting people with the information that they need to begin exploring and starting with relationships, you know, not making it an antagonistic, you know, um, battle, but more of an invitation. You know, we're, we're inviting each other in to explore something new together. 
we don't have all the answers. No one here is the expert in this, but we all bring an expertise that's important. That has to be respected and honored. So how do we get to know each other? Uh, let's, let's first talk about our concerns and hopes and put the agenda aside for a moment um, and then come back to what it is what we're co-creating. So again, I think it's about, um, it's about education, awareness, relationships, and really bringing in all the different parts of the community that you can possibly get to come together in the conversation, because it's, it's, harder, to, um, it's harder to ignore uh, that. And, um, and then when you get people talking together and get really excited, um, that's, that's what moves um, people and places and communities. Thank you so much for outlining that. And it does seem like it's a lot of extra work, but it seems like the benefits outweigh all of the additional effort. Um, and I really hope that our listeners, you know, get to hear your story and get inspired to um, whether, you know, hopefully the city council in whatever city is bringing these ideas, but if not, community members also have the power to bring these ideas to um, city leadership to make sure that they are really listening to um, the people who are living in the community. And um, like you said, inviting to try something different, even if the solution isn't there, the process itself, even if the outcome takes a little bit longer, can be just as powerful. Uh, it seems like as of now, the Cross-Cultural Center is a North Start that you're working towards. But I wonder, um, and you've mentioned, you know, sort of how you imagined the process would be and kind of what it would look like. But I want to take, uh, take a step back. How do you want a community member to feel when they walk into this space? I, that's such a great question. I would love for people to feel, first of all, welcomed, safe, and inspired. When they look around, I want them to see parts of themselves, but also parts of other people and communities and cultures that they may not know yet. And so it becomes um, eye-opening, an eye-opening experience for them. But most of all, just a place to, to come and be themselves and get to know neighbors and feel that, they're, that they're, there's a place there where they can be heard and seen. Thank you, that sounds beautiful. And I know that in many communities, those spaces aren't available. And the fact that you're working to try to create that in your community is really powerful. I've been having conversations with other people who are also doing bridging work. Um, you know, some people are doing it more between individuals or between communities. Um, and you're doing it through, through structural change. You want to change the physical space of your community to promote belonging. Uh, most admit that it's really tough work, not just the amount of effort and time required, but it's also an emotional process. It requires a lot of effort from organizers and participants, and sometimes things don't go on as planned. It's not always linear. I wonder if you've come up with a few lessons as you continue to move forward with incorporating belonging into your work. Well, first of all, thank you for that. That was very affirming. I'm like nodding my head to everything you were saying there. Um, lessons, well, I really think um, having having friends, true friends in this work is, is really, really helpful. We, we, we need our people that we can um, vent to and share our successes and our failures with together. And that's so important. Um, I would say, especially for people of color um, in a community that has tend to be very uh, more white dominant and 
um, you know, historically not as welcoming, not welcoming to people of color. So that's key. Uh, and then, like I said before, our being able to make those relationships outside of our own cultural and ethnic and racial groups um, and really get to know people, um, what makes them tick, what keeps them up at night what they want, their hopes for themselves, for their children and grandchildren. And also trying to find those places of connection for various sectors, because as a nonprofit provider and a community advocate, I can get very narrowly focused on my quote unquote people who do the same kind of things. And we absolutely can't do this alone, right? We need the an, environmental advocates. We need the business community. We need city government leadership. Um, we need schools and educators. Um, so it really is about all of us. And so the lessons I've learned are about if we do not take the time to get to know each other and put, again, put the agendas aside so that we can start with the people and what who they actually are and what they want and what their dreams are for the future, then if we don't take time for that, we will be playing catch up. Something will always be missing. Something will always be off. And we have to do that. It's, it's hard. Like you said, it does take time. It's something that you know, we can't always measure the way people want us to track metrics and, and have the linear, you know, cause and effect. And then we had this great impact and outcome. It's, it's, um, it's not like that. It's about human beings in communities. And we have to allow for that. We have to build that into the process, acknowledge it as part of the, what's required and really hold it and support it for as long as it takes. Sometimes doing that before we even get to the idea stage or the design stage, it's very critical that we can have that as a foundation with each other and for ourselves. Thank you so much for mentioning that. And it actually reminds me, I interviewed another group called the Win and the Warrior and they mentioned a similar sentiment. They said, some fights you can just show up for, but for the long-term fights, if you, don't have, uh, if you don't build relationship time, your fight is gonna fall apart. And it's such an important and instrumental step. And it's really important for people who are listening to take that into account because you're right, sometimes funders, they just want you to see the end product and you have to work within a timeline and that timeline doesn't allow for that relationship building. And so, you know, when doing this belonging work, you're not only dealing with, um, the hiccups that come with bringing so many people into the table, but also with indicators that you have to track to continue to get the funding to do the work that you're doing. Uh, so it's sort of an ongoing process. And I really hope that, you know, funders start to begin to realize that this phase, this relationship phase building is super important for these long-term fights that have a greater impact, you know, for a, a greater long-term impact um, rather than just finishing it and being done. When we begin to form relationships and begin to build trust with one another, that's when real change will happen. What advice would you give to people who are embarking in this type of work for the first time? I would have people first start with um, the things that they're most passionate about. Uh, I think you even said early on, I wish I had had a place like that when I was growing up. Um, what would we have wanted for ourselves? What do we want for our children, right? And, and to begin having that close relationship with our own needs and aspirations, and then finding others who share that dream, not necessarily the specifics, but again, 
being in relationship with others who can walk that with you. And while I think some of the core values are necessary to share in common, um, having an open-mindedness about um, the ways in which those values come about, right? Um, so it, it requires um, a sense of uh, putting aside of one's self and uh, sometimes our individual needs and preferences and being in community. And um, I think if we focus in on that, I know that's, that's kind of not necessarily a very concrete piece of advice to give someone, but I really do believe that if people can take that time to learn that about themselves and then reach out in that same spirit of curiosity with the others around them who do not necessarily look the same as them or may not have the exact same all beliefs, but the power of that, beginning with that, ends up taking you in places that you wouldn't have come to if you had set out with a very clear agenda and um, idea about what you wanted to build or create. So I really um, would say begin with that sense of curiosity and that and the connecting spaces. Thank you. I think that's super important for all of us to acknowledge the responsibility that we have to have in ourselves in this work. It's not just about showing up, but it's also about doing the internal work of deciding how we show up. And if we show up with our own ideas or we show up with an openness to hear other people's ideas. And we don't necessarily have to agree in everything, but are we willing to listen and view people's perspectives in a different way? Um, I really appreciate, Debbie, your time sharing with me everything that you're doing in East King County. It sounds like you're moving forward and doing a lot of amazing work that is, um, you know, like you mentioned, it's years in the making. Um, but once you're there, it's going to have great outcomes for your community. I wonder if we can end with you telling us what is the future that you envision for your community of East King County? Well, the big picture, of course, is about racial justice, you know, equitable access, safe and thriving communities, all of that. But I think the heart of that is, a, is about a community where invitations are extended, compassion is practiced, and where we move beyond merely the practice of these ideals in interpersonal exchanges, but where inclusion and equity are baked in, institutionalized, built into our policies, our protocols, our physical buildings, and our ways of, of being with one another. So I truly hope that you know, future generations will benefit from a new way of relating to each other, to people who are different from them, and relating to their own physical built spaces around them, the, the earth. We owe it to them to build this now where we can and how we can. That was Debbie Lacey. Thank you for your time. And to our listeners, please check out our other podcasts where we discuss belonging and bridging in more detail. For more resources and curriculums on belonging and bridging, please go to belonging.berkeley.edu slash B4B. That is slash letter B, number four, letter B. To follow Debbie's work, go to eastsideforall.org. Until next time.